0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. We talked today to Alex Holmes, the CEO of Plateau Energy Metals. They've recently closed their first tranche of a private placement, which gives them enough money to keep the lights on. But we ask about how he hopes to develop and create value for their two assets in Peru. One being, Uranium, which has seen an uptick in interest, given the movement in the market recently of the spot price, and the second asset, which is a large lithium project. So these are on paper worth a lot of money, but with two million cash in the bank and a twenty million market cap, what's he gonna do? Enjoy the podcast. Hey Alex, how you doing, sir? Good day to you. Well, thank you. How are you? Good day to you. <laughs> That's very formal. Good day to you as well. Um you're, yes. you're, you're at home, Vancouver Island, having a nice time. Um we haven't spoken for a while. How are things? How are you?
1: Uh well, you know, um managing. Yeah. <laughs> uh certainly pandemic has created its own challenges for all of us. Yeah. Um but I think we're you know, we're navigating through this as a family. And uh we've got a company as well
0: to think about. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's do the usual kick-off one-minute overview for people new to this, and I'll take it from there. Sure,
1: yeah, absolutely. So uh, Plateau Energy Metals, uh, listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under PLU ticker symbol, uh, operating in Peru for approximately fifteen years. Uh, we have two projects. Uh, one is a, a lithium project that's sort of newer to the portfolio after discovery in two thousand seventeen. Um, in two years, we've uh, completed extensive metallurgical, engineering work to take it to a first economic study, and that was put out in the beginning of February. And then we have our uranium project, which is also development stage. Uh, that was actually the founding basis of the company, but through consolidation, and exploration, uh, expanded it to over 120 million pounds of resource. Uh, and the last study on that was 2016. Um, largely been on care and maintenance since then just as a result of the market
0: right okay so I think when last time we talked you know I talked about these are quite two very tricky commodities at the moment you know lithium a little bit unloved uranium definitely unloved but things have changed not least all your presentation because I think you've seen a bit of movement in the uranium uh, space of the last month or so, um, and you're talking the green energy story there. You've kind of brought uranium back into the fold. So why don't we talk about that first? So the markets moved. You know, you've seen the the, the spot price go up. The sentiment has changed. We talked about sentiment last time as well. Um, is that in your thinking when you're bringing this up? Because again, you know, I think one of the topics we discussed was you know potential split of the company where you take the lithium off one way and Uranium another so what's been in the thinking of the board and, and yourself on the uranium?
1: we sort of we we did put uranium project just to the bit of the background in terms of the way we were communicating ourselves. We've always looked at presenting ourselves as a, a green energy company, if you will. Um, the reason we put it to the background was was largely sentiment, and we have seen that shifted recently with shutdowns. Uh, we've seen the spot price move uh, I think we it would I'd still like to see you know, some term contracts and utilities covering to really um, say this is more than just a pandemic move. Um, the other thing we were waiting on was the regulations from the government for export and transport. And uh, recently in March at the PDAC, uh, the Vice Minister of Energy and Mines uh, announced publicly that they're working on those. They will be in place by the end of this year. And uh, while Peru is on shutdown as well, uh, we've been able to um, speak to the ministry and and just confirm that those are still on track. So I think those are two things that help us show uh, to investors. That, look, this is. A Uranium project with a large resource base. It's low capex, low opex. It has a lot of merits going for it. And uh, it's time for us to revisit this and start to um, bring it more into the limelight, so to speak.
0: Right. And I guess as the market evolves, like you say, there's been a lot, which we've discussed with a lot of CEO, uh, Uranium Junior CEOs over the past, past months or so. A lot of movement in that space. They say spot price coming back, a lot of close shutdowns. Um, you know, Sakar Lake and the Kazazan Prom and Namibia, etc. It's, it's, it's all building for the macro story. And you do have a large-ish resource, but you've also got a lot of hair on it. Do you, what type of company or strategic partner do you think is going to be interested in stepping in and grappling with some of the issues that you've been grappling with over the past couple of years?
1: Well, I think that we'll, um, you know, one of those hairs is our concessions. Uh, issue that we're working through. I think um, you know indicative of the government's support to see this project move forward is two part. One is the desire to put regulations in place. the other piece is breaking up and fragmenting um, portions of the uranium deposits because it's a series of deposits simply is not logical. And so I think that <clears throat> those two in many ways go hand in hand and so I think we'll, 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 we'll resolve that hair uh, in time. And we've always thought that, but it takes time, right? We're working in South America. Um, with regards to, you know, when I look at the other um, hair, if you will, I think that, uh, you know, that it's the regulations. So I think those are coming. I think that'll be a huge statement of the government's desire to see these move forward. uh uranium development in Peru is generally as a whole, um, I think people are very comfortable with Peru as a mining jurisdiction. Uh, it has a stable, relatively stable currency. Uh, there's a lot of foreign investment there, etc. Uh, and so, in terms of the strategic parties, I think interested uh, because it's north of the 100 million pound, uh, we'll call it a threshold. It really uh, is appealing from a mine life production profile perspective and. Uh, when you chalk it up against other projects in and around this resource size you've also got low capital intensity and low operating costs and we see areas where we would like to spend a little bit of money uh, this year to potentially um, that would ultimately have the impact of improving the economics
0: right so what do you remind people what you know about it today because you talk about low low uh, cost good economics what does that mean
1: so 2016 was the last, PEA study that was completed, um, and it was done at $50 a pound, which was pretty normal for that period of time for where people were pricing studies. Um, We have a $300 million initial capex, 10-year mine life, six million pounds a year, uh, 17 and change cash cost, uh, 18 and change all-in sustaining cost. Uh, We have it's a 40% IRR after tax, 1.8 year payback. That's only 70 million pounds of the 124 million pounds in resource. And a large driver of that uh, is uh, it was obviously grade related in terms of what makes its way into the mine plan. The piece of work I alluded to is pre concentration work. Uh, So, Cameco in 2013, if you recall, they used to own some of these concessions and it had a resource of about 30 million pounds in those concessions and they had done work in 2013 and they demonstrated that uh, uh, about 85% of Uranium sits in half of the rock and they believed that traditional uh, pre-concentration methodologies uh, could separate and effectively the result would be we could relook at the 50 or so million pounds not in the mine plan as potentially coming into the mine plan and also look at, uh, we would be looking at effectively processing higher grade or less material, however you want to look at. It. Okay. And that could have an impact overall on the project economics.
0: So how much money are we talking about spending for you to be able to get to the point where you go, okay, I, I think we've got the, the additional information you're going to need to support that 2016 PEA to be able to then go and have conversations with a group and say, look, I think these th- this is workable because the numbers from the PEA look great, right? But, it, but it's a PEA. You know, you, you know, do you take it through the PFS or do you give it to someone else to do? How you get, what's going on in your head? How do you think you monetize this?
1: Well, we actually think there's a path to uh, feasibility study. The biggest portion of uh, uh, what's left to be done on the step towards feasibility study is, is infield drilling to reserves. Uh, there's been a lot of processing work done in the background over the years. Remember it was 10 years of metallurgical test work uh, ahead of this and a couple hundred thousand metres of drilling um so the path to feasibility study is approximately 18 months and 20 million US dollars and that includes concurrently doing the environmental permitting process I don't think we need to take it all the way to feasibility study to attract a strategic partner what I believe we need is that strategic partner to see the asset for what it is today uh, see the uh, the opportunities that we've Already identified that needs some test work to be able to validate them, and then get involved to help be part of that funding solution towards feasibility Study.
0: Okay, so th- this seems to me there's, there's there's two routes. Sorry, there's some money you want to spend this year. You, how much money have you got in the bank at the moment?
1: Uh, when we close our second tranche of our financing, we'll have uh, approximately 2.3, 2.4 million dollars cash net. Right. So how much of that are you
0: proposing you spend on the uranium asset?
1: So the pre-concentration work is uh, under a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, it's, it's approximately fifty thousand dollars. It's not a huge Canadian. Uh, it's not a huge uh, amount of test work to be done. Pending the outcome of that work, if it's positive, I think the decision we need to make is: does it make sense to do uh, effectively an update on the PEA, just to kind of recast the project as this is what we'll be focusing on towards feasibility, mm-hmm. and then look at bringing in a a party to work with us to move it forward.
0: Right. So just understand what the options are. So you, you'll spend a hundred thousand bucks plus, I don't know what amount, to be able to make a decision as to whether you're going to take it through the PFS stage. So you talked about twenty million bucks being able to get it through to the end of a PFS with more drilling, etc. Your market cap's like twenty-three million today. So. What point do you bring in the strategic before, or after the PFS? Because obviously that's going to be dilatory. Uh,
1: it's approximately 20 million to feasibility. To feasibility, uh, but right? Uh, before, beforehand, we would like a strategic partner to be part of the solution that takes it uh, to feasibility study.
0: Got it. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, or, or,
1: all of the solution.
0: Okay. So there's, there's a there's a there's a bit of work before you kind of can have those conversations, but not a lot of money needs to be spent to get to a point where you're having those conversations. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I think we can, um, the project status is such that we can have those conversations uh, sooner rather than later. And on the back of that, getting seeing the regulations get in place from Ministry of Energy and Mines, um, I do think that when you look around the world, there's a handful of projects that kind of fit within uh, you know, our large scale. Long mine life exploration upside, reasonable capex uh, relative to production profile, and uh, and it's the audience that is looking at that to have exposure to that that uh, we'll be having conversations with.
0: Okay, well let's see what happens. The market seems to be, you know, fast changing um, at, at the moment. Um, and if that keeps going the way it is, I guess you're going to have more conversations than, than less. Um, let's bounce over to the lithium project because that's where you see the company's yeah, success being. It's a very large project. In fact, why don't you break down the project for us?
1: Sure. Uh, so, in terms of resource, it's uh, 4.7 million tons lithium carbonate equivalent, hard rock deposit. Uh, we have a 33 year mine life with a uh, phased expansion plan. So an initial capex of just under six hundred million, phased expansion of three phases uh, throughout the mine life of thirty-three years. Uh, low operating cost uh, is low second quartile, just under four thousand dollars per ton, and this excludes any potential byproducts. It excludes uh, excess power that gets generated at site, and uh, this focuses on focuses on the lithium-rich tuff. There's there's effectively three zones of mineralization. The tuff is the the higher grade zone that's sandwiched top and bottom by the other zones. Uh, and that's about 50% of the resource. The lower and upper zones are lower grade in lithium, higher grade in things like cesium, rubidium, and potassium. So they almost need a different line of thinking um, in the future. And uh, the project itself is able to, through a conventional tank leaching approach, that's used in Copper and Gold industry extracts Lithium into Sulphate solution. And downstream of there, we go through a standard impurity removal, three steps to crystallizer precipitation plant and precipitate out a Lithium chemical. In this case, we've demonstrated a path to Lithium carbonate. Uh, However, because we start in Lithium Sulphate solution, we will be looking to demonstrate the project flexibility to hydroxide, even a Sulphate salt, as an example.
0: Right. So, how are you viewing the market at the moment? Because last time we spoke, you seem seemed to think this is a very reasonably priced capex. Uh, I noticed you've you reduced it a bit. Have you? Has capex dropped a bit? No. Uh,
1: no. It's always been. It's just under six hundred.
0: Just under six hundred. Oh, right.
1: Okay. Um, and then the phased expansions are funded from cash flows.
0: Probably what I was remembering. Okay. Um, we you know we've talked to a few lithium players in the market, and you know they're. DFS stage, they're looking to get financed. They're struggling, not just COVID, but you know pre pre COVID. The lithium space is, you know, saturated. Where, what, what's the play here for you? Because you got two point three million. You're going to spend a couple, say, a couple of hundred thousand of that on you know advancing the uranium through to uranium. So you can have a conversation there. But what's the plan here? Is it just survival mode? Until the market recovers. And what can you do? What what can you actually affect or control?
1: I think, um, well, we can't control the pace of EV adoption, for example. Uh, We can't control the pace of gigafactories being built and the requirement for the raw materials. Um, So, what we can control within our destiny, if you will, is uh, I think this year is really about being carefully managing capital. Um, to move through what is it's an unprecedented time Uh, and see how the second half of the year starts to play out as economies slowly start to open up again. The Lithium space is a challenge right now. There's um, no doubts about it. It's been that way for, arguably for a couple of years, really. Uh, It's been this downward trend. Um, With the economic setback, people start to wonder how quickly are consumers going to get back out there and start buying cars. Uh, so certainly you know, that's a cyclical industry. Um, and having said all that, I do I have noticed that um, the car companies in, in Europe continue to stay committed to their EV rollout. Um, VW being the biggest with their ID3. Uh, for all I know they could start giving those away. <laughs> I don't know just to get to their emission regulation caps. Um, and then there's been open letters sent in by large uh, industries in, in Europe saying, don't change the emissions cap. Let's stay on course here. Uh, we need to focus on this. And uh, just because we're going through what we're going through doesn't mean we should give up on the green economy and reducing our footprint and impact on oil. So um, I think that's, that's the demand side. And on the supply side, um, you mentioned that you've spoken to a few lithium. Uh, companies as well. I don't see projects moving forward in this environment. There's no project finance coming. Uh, the projects that have been stalled, put on care and maintenance, come offline. Some of that's driven by maybe they shouldn't have been built in the first place, um, and, and because where prices have gone to. Uh, some of that's also driven by you know just a lack of new capital coming into the system to be able to support these. So I think that we. Shouldn't lose focus on the supply side. Isn't going to be able to. It's still not going to be able to keep up, and that's been a theme. And we've had this excess supply the last two years, excess supply this year. Arguably, the pipeline of development projects that were planned or positioned to come on stream over the next five years uh, have that landscape's changed. And,
0: and, and around it. Yeah, I mean, we we, we again spoke to some CEOs of some other battery uh, metal companies as well. I mean, one this morning is from Australia, and he was painting a, a devastating picture of the effect of COVID nineteen in terms of disrupting supply chains, uh, production in China, across Asia, um, you know, and to a greater extent in the in the US as well. So. But we also discussed the so that's the, the, that's what's actually happening right now, and in his view, and how quickly that gets back up and running with this kind of disconnected chain gets up and running again um, wasn't wasn't good. But you know that, that's his opinion. Um, you know, but he's you know he's operated in that space for a long time. Um, I'm wondering what the behavioural buying behavioural pattern of Regular um, people is you know do you, if you were going to buy a car, and you may have been switching to you know a BMW electric car, do you hold off for a couple of years? And you know what what do those decisions mean? So that's that's got to weigh heavily on your mind about you know how the the buyers whatever whatever targets you set, however whatever people think of the Green Revolution, if people don't spend money to buy these cars, there's nothing the automotives can do about it other than wait, which is the position you're in, isn't it? Well, I think
1: that um, you know, we can't predict consumer behaviour, but we do know from the past history that uh, when you know people are out of work or they've had um, you know, salary cutbacks, or they feel like we're heading into a recession, the spending slows down and savings increase um, I do think that I don't think people's mindsets have changed in in the willingness to get into electric vehicles so even though oil is where it is I don't really think that that's going to have a long term impact because while that's all happening, the cost of batteries is, is continues to come down, and the efficiencies and the technology and we're managing to get to a point where uh, the the life the life cost total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle still makes more sense than a petrol vehicle. Um, so I think that the car companies. I mean, this is my own this is complete speculation mm-hmm. to be honest. But I believe that uh, as we come through this, I think that subsidies, low cost financing. There's going to be a number of attractive options that are going to be enticing for people to pull out their books and really uh, look at electric vehicles as their next purchase for a vehicle. I think that um, we have to remember it's only a two million a year vehicle market in total, compared to a hundred million vehicle market globally for all consumer passenger vehicles, uh, internal combustion everything. So it's really a small, small piece of the pie today. So, anyways, that's that's kind of my general thinking about it. I think that what the pandemic has done for the world is it's probably opened us our eyes up to um, the the risk or the the exposure our supply chains have to relying on too heavily on one partner Mm -hmm. or one supplier. And I think that that um, could cause an interesting shift in the way certainly OEMs think. Uh, about their supply chains, they can't have exposure to one country um, so heavily. And so they'll start to look at other ways to protect their supply chain um, as they, you know, whether it's more slowly or continue at this pace, start to roll out. Okay. The, uh, electric vehicle
0: models. that's that's enough forecasting from us. Um, I think we should come back to you. Um, so you've got about two million bucks left, so the the original question was, do you hunker down go into survival mode or are you going to spend that two million bucks and if so, what on?
1: it's very much survival mode right small programs the uranium pre-concentration program is small mm-hmm. dollar wise but hunker down to be honest I don't think it's going to it's going to get worse before it gets better right um, I think you know realities will start to set in and um, I think 2021, Is not off the table as a year for things to get, you know, to bounce back in in Mm. some form. Uh, We've we've had rescue stimulus. Now let's see what happens when we come through this, out the other end. But definitely hunkering down, being smart about where we spend our capital.
0: Okay. Uh, So, so on what basis did you do your recent raise? What did you tell them you're going to do with the cash? Was it a case of oh, it'll pay my salary? For the next two years, while we wait for the market to turn, or they—they they have expectations of you to enhance the value of the or not insignificant assets that you've got.
1: Yeah, what we communicated was that uh, a preserve the assets base, right? So, uh, good standing fees, etc. So preserve the asset base in place. Uh, at the corporate level, we've uh, cut costs where we can. We've gone to seventy-five percent of salaries uh, where we can. Um, so we are saving cash that way. We keep our Peru team intact, the core of the Peru team intact. Um, so, you know, assets and, and I, the Peru team is an asset. So I include that, keep everybody together. Um, and to the extent we can do work on the project, it will be low level work, uh, preparatory things for being able to move the project forwards when markets are more positive and. Capital flows a little bit more readily, etc.
0: Right. So, is there any good news on the lithium? Have you, have you found stuff, discovered stuff, worked stuff out which people should be excited about or points to future success?
1: I think, I think the work that we, the results we put on our uh, preliminary, uh, the preliminary network on our byproducts, mm-hmm. I think are very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to bear in mind it's preliminary. But what ANSTO was able to show is that um, through temperature reduction, recall that we do a, an acid leach at 95 Celsius, as they reduce the temperature and neutralize the solution with lime, a neutralizing agent, they were able to uh, precipitate out, drop out 100% of the cesium, rubidium and about 18% of the potassium. Uh, the potassium coming, it's already in a sulfate solution coming as an SOP. SOP is a fertilizer. I think the other thing this pandemic has done is really open our eyes up to how much we rely on farmers and agriculture. Um, SOP is strategically important in Peru because it has no domestic sources. And the imports in Peru have been growing at 18% a year in the last 10 years. So agriculture is a huge part of the economy. Um, cesium and rubidium are interesting small markets. Cesium is a very strategic chemical with a variety of uses. It can be high value. Uh, I think the important thing is is it came readily out of solution. Now we need to understand what's the value impact of that. Okay. Um, but all of those things we believe are going to be contributors to improving the economics of the project.
0: Okay. And just to explain the MOU to me um, for the SOP. I mean, What was the structure of that again, or what was the point of it?
1: So, I really look at it as a first step, um, first step of what we hope will be a much longer term relationship, working with a uh, family owned company that's uh, certainly one of the larger fertilizer traders, marketers, uh, producers. Um, What we're hoping this evolves into, and the intention it evolves into, is an offtake for the SOP. Got it. Okay. Uh, We obviously have our development work to do. What was really attractive about Amaropa is their long term relationship value. They've got inroads into the farmers, into the end user that's going to make sure the product that we produce is uh, appealing as possible to them. Yeah, okay. So they they bring some know how to the table and we bring some know how to the table.
0: Okay, okay. What would you say shareholders need to be thinking about? Because obviously, lithium's in a difficult space, uranium's. Has been in a different space for a long time, but what's your message to your shareholders or people looking at this from from new?
1: I think um, you know, sort of pull it to pull it all together. What investors should keep in mind is, um, yes, the lithium uh, market is is challenging at the moment. The long term outlook has not changed. We have a very large asset, with attractive economics, a billion and a half NPV done at the same price deck as basically other uh, lithium companies. Um, That's very strategic. We're in a strong jurisdiction of Peru, and the second asset, which you know really um, should really get as much attention as lithium asset is our uranium asset. Uh, It's a large resource base. It's low capex, low cost uh, operating cost, all-in sustaining cost. Uh, That MPV after tax is six hundred million. Done at fifty dollars per pound in twenty sixteen. At thirty five dollars a pound, it's still two hundred and thirty million MPV. So you know, and mid twenties IRR. So you know, when you look at those two together, um, I guess the sum of the parts are certainly worth more than 20, 25 million market cap, even in this environment. And uh, and you know, as a group, we've been able to a pull that uranium project together, move it through development. Yes, hit pause because of sentiment. We're looking to kind of restart that on a slow basis, find ways to incrementally improve it. And in two years, we went from a discovery of a lithium deposit to a very large project that is I think strategically important in the supply chain and the two together are a very attractive portfolio
0: Alex um like thanks thanks very much for the update I, I know it's like the market is crazy at the moment um, obviously lithium I think you say it's, a, it's probably a waiting game not just be your project but for lots of lithium projects at the moment whatever stage they're at um, but the uranium sounds like it could be moving your project could be could be a missing piece for someone. So I look forward to. Uh, why don't you let us know how how that um, work does? You know um, that work that you're uh, doing there goes. And do um, you keep us up to date? Pick up the phone. Tell us what's going on. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, CruxInvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor.